0: Hello and welcome to Feminist Fridays, your weekly intersectional dose of self-empowerment and equality. I'm your host, Sarah Liberty, coming to your airwaves from Sydney. And this week we have a guest who is dedicated to supporting people who are going through a rough patch. Her name is Rules, and she's a psychotherapist, group therapist, mental health trainer and the director of a new non-profit social enterprise counselling centre in Sydney called Rough Patch. Amber practices counselling through a feminist lens, yay. In particular, her new counselling centre was founded because so many women who work as counsellors in the not-for-profit sector are still not paid a wage commensurate with their experience. Her centre works on a social enterprise model that has never been done in Australia, which we'll be hearing more about soon. Hi, Amber. Welcome to Feminist Fridays. Hi. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. So I'd like to start uh, asking you what it was like for you growing up.
1: Um, where did you grow up and what were some of your early influences? Mm. Well, I grew up on the central coast of New South Wales um, mm-hmm. in the sort of late 80s and 90s. And it was very different than it is now. It was much smaller. It was kind of like growing up in the country. Mm-hmm. I grew up on a five acre farm Um kind of in the middle of nowhere. There was a bus that came in in the mornings and a bus that dropped you off in the afternoons and that was it. Mm-hmm. So it was very much small town uh, living and I was—I uh, grew up in a difficult household. I grew up in a kind of uh, violent and tumultuous household
0: okay.
1: and um, uh, my parents struggled with kind of addiction and there was trauma in the household. So I was kind of lonely, bored uh, and, you know, scared a lot, I guess, when I was younger. So I was really, uh, I was really enamored with like tough women when I was a kid. And I think that was a result of growing up in the household I grew up in. Mm. Um, But I was obsessed with weirdos and, you know, punk rock. And I loved Bjork and Courtney Love and Debbie Harry and Stevie Nicks and still do. Um, So, yeah, I felt like a bit like a fish out of water when I was younger.
0: That's really interesting because I also grew up on a farm. And I'm, I I, li- I love tough women as well, the same ones that you mentioned. Mm-hmm. So we've got a few things in common already. Yeah. <laughs> so how did you get onto the career path you're on now? I understand you've previously worked in the not-for-profit space and in the last few years work in private practice. Mm-hmm. So Rough Patch, the new affordable counselling service that you're You've launched is a non profit social enterprise. Can you explain the differences between not for profit and non profit?
1: Yeah. Well, uh, so social enterprise enterprise is relatively new in Australia Mm. um, and particularly in the mental health space. Not many people are doing it. So uh, we use the word non-profit to differentiate between not-for-profit, which would be like a registered charity in Mm. Australia. Mm. So we're not a registered charity. We're actually registered um, with ASIC as a a for-profit business. But I guess that's our way of acknowledging that we commit to putting all of our profits back into the business so that we can continue to – Um, spend money on programs and on continuing to have affordable counselling services and um, other programs that we hope to run in the future. Mm -hmm. So the non-profit goes in front of the social enterprise. So hopefully people ask that question and um, seek to understand what that means in the context of what we're doing.
0: It's really interesting that you say that social enterprise is quite new in Australia, especially in the mental health space. Mm.
1: Why do you think that is? Well, I think, you know, we've got these Uh, traditional, these two traditional ways of doing mental health service delivery in Australia. Mm. One is um, full fee paying private practices where they're run like a business. And that's really understandable. People have to make their living. Mm. Um, But that's uh, really unaffordable for a lot of people. And you do get a Medicare rebate uh, for psychologists only. So counsellors like me and my colleagues, we, we don't get any of that support to pass on to our clients mm. so clients have to absorb the the full fee if they 're p- paying you know private practitioner mm-hmm. um, or on the other end of the scale is you know government funded non government organizations Uh, And a lot of those are faith based charities. So Mm. they get government funding um, and then they also get funding from, you know, donations through the church and that kind of thing. But for various reasons, that's not good for people, uh, for a lot of people. Um, Mm. It's great. They're incredibly useful and important community services and they do great work, but they're just not for everyone. Mm. Mm. And the other thing is. They often, uh, they have such long wait lists and they have so many people wanting the service who can't afford to pay for a full fee private practitioner, but can actually afford to do something a little bit in the middle. So they can pay something for their counselling, but they just can't afford the full fees. Mm. So that's kind of why Rough Patch uh, was you know created and sits mm. in the middle of those two. But as to why social enterprise hasn't really happened in Australia much, I'm not sure the the it's much more prevalent in kind of industry. So uh, the government's really supporting social enterprise from what I can understand for people who are coming up with clever solutions to industrial problems, but mm. that's nowhere near, you know, my area of expertise. Mm. Yeah. Okay. I, w- I must say that when I've seen
0: psychologists, it has been, yeah, quite an expense, but mm. you get a Medicare rebate. Yeah. Mm. Um, but it is a barrier yeah. and if you want to go and get that non-fee paying service, the other barrier is the wait list. So mm. it's great that what you're offering is something that meets in the middle. Yeah, we hope so, yeah. So as a, um, I guess, a counsellor and the director of Rough Patch, was it always something that you aspired to do or was there an uh aha moment or something that you witnessed more generally that made you want to pursue it?
1: Yeah, so I think, I mean, we always, councillors always joke that... we all walk a fine line between client and counsellor, you know, so Mm. we're all people who've had our own experiences of either mental health difficulties or, you know, growing up in families that were quite difficult. Um, So a lot of us, uh, yeah, have had our own experiences of mental distress and for me it was no different. I have no doubt that, you know, the household that I grew up in and uh, my parents' struggles with addiction and that kind of stuff is what kind of informed what I ended up doing. Mm. But prior to being a therapist, I actually worked in the entertainment industry. And uh, so I, was, um, I, I did lots of different things, um, but primarily worked in music and film and television. And uh, it's an industry that really encourages drug and alcohol use, you know. It's,
0: yeah. It's one of the last kind
1: of bastions of, um, I think it's kind of Entertainment and building are the two industries that have just still use and encourage uh, drugs and alcohol quite a bit. Mm -hmm. So in my work in that industry, I really started to see how many people were suffering and how many uh, people may need a support uh, that was different to what I was doing for them. So what I was doing was management and, you know, touring and that kind of stuff, which is great fun, but really has a shelf life, particularly if you want to get uh some recovery under your belt and stop using drugs and alcohol, which is what I wanted to do. Mm. Um so yeah, I, I kind of I guess I slowly came around to the idea that I could help people differently. Mm. Yeah. That's great. It's really interesting to hear
0: that you yeah, you change your career path. And I I do know that a lot of people who work in the mental health space have experienced something themselves. Yeah. So it's um it's great that you share that as well, and that you're open about it, because I think it really builds trust.
1: Mm. There's a big debate, you know, in sort of therapeutic circles about how much of your lived experience you should share with the world and with mm. clients. And, you know, the old school of therapy is that you must remain neutral in a blank slate. And mm. I, I don't think that's true. And there's so many people with lived experience stories that, that as you said, clients feel connected to that yeah. and then it builds trust. And, and it's a really wonderful thing. But... Um, yeah, it's not something that's done a lot. So I, I definitely get uh, critiqued by colleagues <laughs> for the amount of, of myself that I share with the world.
0: Mm, yeah. yeah, no, I must say that when I've seen psychologists who shared their story or parts of their story with me, that it certainly helped me more. Yeah. Because you just connect
1: and trust them. Yeah, that's right. And yeah. of course, it doesn't mean that a counsellor can't be good if they don't share that, but I know for some of us, Uh, certainly for some of my clients, it's really supportive, that Mm. they feel like I'm not a person who knows more than them or that I'm sitting higher up a hierarchy or something, Mm. but that I'm just another human being who just happens to have learned a bit about this stuff and can pass on that, you know, knowledge.
0: Yeah. So I understand um, uh, with Rough Patch, I just wanted to first ask what type of counselling do you focus on or specialise in? And just so you know, I've experienced anxiety depression and trauma in my life and I would not be the stronger person that I am today if I wasn't and in the words of Hannah Gatsby, a broken woman who has rebuilt herself thanks to psychological and psychiatric support so as well as having an amazing GP so I really practice gratitude for anyone who works in your field mm-hmm. yeah I've forgotten the question Sarah sorry <laughs> Well, just I was asking what kind of counselling that that you uh, focus on.
1: Yeah, um, so I'm I'm a drug, alcohol, and gambling specialist. Okay, um, and uh, obviously I I don't have a medical degree, so that's just when I say specialist, I I really mean talk specialist. Mm. Um, but those are obviously complicated and dangerous, uh, you know, experiences for people. So mm. uh, that was always my passion because of my experiences growing up and my experiences with drug and alcohol use myself and my friends and my parents and all that kind of stuff. Um, But uh, that's my kind of private practice work Mm. is uh, looking after uh, people who experience drug, alcohol and gambling use and also their family members. Mm. But Rough Patch is kind of a generalist counselling clinic. So uh, I I kind of do both of those things alongside each other. Mm, Interesting. So you've mentioned that
0: your role at Rough Patch is very much full-time but it's pro bono work and you continue to work in private practice counselling with the people impacted by drugs, alcohol and gambling and you that and have that as a source of income mm-hmm. and so you have almost two full-time jobs <laughs> um, which is amazing but it sounds like you have a lot on your plate. I do have a lot of my How do you practice self-care for
1: yourself? Yeah, that's a great question. (laughs) Um, uh, Well, what I will say is that we opened in August and um, so I've been working very hard since kind of June of this year, so it will ease off at some point, I'm sure. Mm. Um, But uh, self-care at the moment for me is putting myself to bed early, having a bath occasionally, and uh, my friends and family would probably attest that I'm not doing a great job of everything else in my life at the moment. So... Uh, Self-care is something that's on the radar for me, but I'm not quite there yet. Mm. But, um, you know, in order to remain a a good therapist, I need to do some of that. So I'm pacing myself and I have the support of an incredible team of volunteers and counsellors who are all incredible and really believe in this project and want to see it succeed. So Mm. I have an administration volunteer, I have a website volunteer. We've got student counsellors who support us. So, yeah. I'm not alone in it. <laughs> That's great. Well, it's good that you have self-care on
0: your radar and it's something that you acknowledge. Mm. And I think, you know, lots of us struggle with self-care and there's this kind of, you know, culture in many parts of the world, lots of parts of the world that I've lived in, where it's kind of like a work hard, play hard culture, mm. especially in Australia. Mm. And... um I really, in my non-profit work, encourage people to practice self-care, including unplugging from devices. It's a huge thing. Yeah, absolutely. Because I work in the kind of um, online human rights space. And whilst I I think that it's really important for people, you know, we use the online space constantly for connection, I think, you know, practicing self-care for me is about unplugging. Mm. I don't have a bar, sadly. <laughs> but, you know, reading a book, going for a walk, getting outside, um, admiring other people's dogs in the park, <laughs> going to see a film, yeah. Yeah. It's really important to just,
1: yeah. It is. And I think, you know, I think self-care is a bit of a buzzword recently and it is vitally important. But I think our understanding of what self-care is is also maybe quite important. Like it's not just lavender baths and reading a book. It can sometimes be going to the doctor or going to bed early or making sure you eat a nutritious meal or drinking enough water, you know, talking about your feelings. So I think some people, certainly my clients have said to me, I don't really know what that means or how to do that. You know, it feels a bit fluffy. So I guess my encouragement would be to do self-care the way it works for you. Yeah, totally. I'm totally with you.
0: I'm not really into, yeah, lavender <laughs> me neither <laughs> doesn't it's not quite on my self care list yeah so um the economic impact of gender inequality is something i'm very aware of in many sectors and as an intersectional feminist myself who's worked in humanitarian and human rights roles for most of my career um i've seen it happen um How do you see impacting the counselling sector? Do you think both women counsellors are being held back, as well as their clients or patients, from getting expert support that they need?
1: Mm. Look, I think it's a great question. It's really interesting in our industry because, as far as I can tell, I don't have exact statistics, but as far as I can tell, about eighty percent of our industry appears to be women. Yeah, if not eighty, quite a high percentage for sure. And that's wonderful. That's really great that uh, women get so much of a go in our industry. But I guess the flip side of that is these types of jobs uh, used to be, uh, you know, when psychology was more kind of a medical thing, they were all men's jobs. If you think about the kind of quote unquote founding fathers of psychology, they're all men. Hmm. So as these jobs have become relegated to women the pay's gone down. <laughs> the the kind of the perks have gone down. Certainly, uh, in my experience, um, in the hierarchy or the culture of mental health, counsellors sit around you know the bottom, unfortunately. Mm. Um, and we, particularly those of us who work in not for profits, are uh, relegated the really difficult clients because they're people who can't pay who've had um, various kind of mental health or mental distress incidences and who have been through the system and end up at these not-for-profits or public health hospitals, that kind of thing. So the type of work we do is already really hard. And then it's done by women, particularly in not-for-profits where we don't get paid very well, certainly not paid enough to kind of, in my opinion, really care for ourselves well and to earn a wage that matches the intensity of what we do. Mm. So I think the disparity kind of shows up, certainly in wages um, and certainly in the intensity of the work, but also in my, this is just my observation, but it seems to me like men in those uh, jobs also move up to management quicker Mm. because it pays a bit more and because they really uh, they need to look after their families, understandably. Mm. So a lot of the women that I've worked with, and certainly for me, um, if I didn't have a partner who supported me financially, I wouldn't have been able to do those jobs part-time to look after my own mental health, mm. or I do them full-time and I'm a complete shell of a person, mm. which has been the case for me throughout my career. Mm. So it, it, it's tricky for women, and it's kind of the way the industry is set up now. I know a mm. lot of women who work two or three days a week in a in a charity, you know, or a not-for-profit government, whatever job, and then work one or two days either looking after children or in a private practice. And that's hard work. Private practice is hard work and it's expensive. Mm, mm. Yeah. It is expensive. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Both for the client and for yeah. That's yeah.
1: right, for the practitioner yeah. to have the, the office and all of the resources. And, yeah. you know, I estimated last year I spent about $25,000 on, pers- on on uh, professional development, you wow. know, training. And a lot of my colleagues have got master's degrees and higher, you yeah. know, and we get paid $38 an hour.
0: Mm, gosh. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I really hope that things can change. Yeah, me too. yeah. me too. Me um, too. So with Rough Patch... How are you creating
1: change in your current role? Yeah, so um, Rough Patch is a big experiment. Um, it's kind of it's based on uh, a Canadian social worker called Kate Scowan, uh came up with this idea and she uh, founded the, the Canadian version of Rough Patch, which is called Hard Feelings. And she mm-hmm. lent us this very generously gifted us this idea. And that was to have a space where counsellors are supported. Um, but can be self-employed private practitioners and can earn more than they would earn in an NGO, you Mm -hmm. know, their $38 an hour or whatever it is, Um, but could at the same time be surrounded by other people who understood the struggles of being a private practitioner, who wanted to build their careers and who at the same time wanted to give back something to the community. Because a lot of counsellors I work with really acknowledge that it costs too much money for people to get service. So what Rough Patch does is we charge a very low room rental rate. Mm-hmm. And so that takes a lot of the pressure off the private practitioners in terms of setting up their businesses and they don't have to pay for a huge amount of overheads. Mm. But in turn, what they do for us is reduce their fees drastically. So anyone who comes to see a Rough Patch counsellor will only ever pay um, between 60 and $90 mm-hmm. for individual sessions or between 70 and and 100 for couple sessions. Okay, So that's, as far as I can tell, about half of the market rate for private practice counselling. Yeah, no, that's amazing. And it's only because our counsellors are so generous and have decided that they're happy to do that. Mm. So my job really, or Rough Patch's job, is to provide the wraparound services Mm -hmm. to support them. So that's things like, a, a you know, a supportive space for them to meet in once a month, to have our community of practice meetings. Mm-hmm. It's doing things like this podcast to kind of get the word out there. Yeah. Um, and it's being, hopefully, um, a supportive person that they can check in with when they need to, as well as their colleagues.
0: Mm. Yeah, no, I think that's, um. it's uh, It's amazing that you're able to provide, you know, through the space for people. Mm-hmm. and. I'm
1: wondering how many counsellors do you have? So I've got 12 at the moment. When we started recruitment in uh, uh, June, we had 91 or 92 people apply. Wow. Which I did not expect. Yeah. <laughs> so I, uh, that, was, that was quite a journey. <laughs> um, but we currently have uh, 12 counsellors and we'll be doing a new intake of counsellors in the next couple of months. Okay. At the moment, our rooms are kind of at half capacity so yeah. really the aim for us to be financially viable is for us to have fully booked counselling rooms all the time, Yeah, but also so that we can be providing as much service as possible to the community. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wonderful.
0: Um, so my next question is how has COVID impacted your work and the people or the counsellors you're working with? I know that many people have been feeling understandably anxious and or depressed during these uncertain times. And many people are also unable to afford the right mental health services that they need. What's your experience been?
1: Yeah, so I was incredibly lucky at the beginning of COVID in a way that I'm aware a lot of people weren't in that. I work in a job where people, uh, the need for service increased. Yeah. (laughs) So Um, I had a lot of new clients uh, in April, but in March it really dropped off Mm -hmm. almost overnight. Um, But it wasn't long afterwards that uh, it picked up again for me in my private practice. Mm. And then by then I had started planning for Rough Patch, so... Uh, I was seeing clients as well as, um, you know, kind of planning for Rough Patch, um, which, as you can imagine, was a massive job. So we had to kind of source a building and we had to build the counselling rooms and find furniture and all that kind of stuff. So uh, one might say it was a bit foolish to do that in the middle of a a global crisis, but Mm. that's what we forged ahead and did. And uh, in terms of the types of difficulties that people have, Mm. um, a, a lot of folks, just experienced an intensified version of what goes on for them every day. Yeah. So if you're a parent, parenting became more difficult. Mm. If you're a partner, being a partner became more difficult. You know, work was a struggle. Work got even harder. Mm. So it was a lot of adjusting and, and a huge amount of anxiety. And yeah. even for me as a counsellor, you know, we're not immune to it. I was mortified that, I mean, not mortified, I was terrified that uh, I would get COVID, that I'd give COVID to someone that was vulnerable, that I would somehow not disinfect a couch properly and I'd pass it on between clients or something yeah. like that, you know. So it was a really like quite anxious time for a lot of us. Yeah. So – um you know, I, I had a lot of support from my clinical supervisor and, and my colleagues and, and we all sort of, I guess, got through that collectively. And that's settled down a bit now, but I think people are now dealing with the after effects of that initial mm. big anxiety. You know, we were really lucky in Sydney in a way, of, of course, that they weren't in Melbourne. Um, so we have been, you know, being able to get through this relatively unscathed mm. um, in terms of our, uh, you know, looking after the business and that kind of thing. Mm. Um, but I think, yeah, we're, we're really dealing uh, or supporting people through a lot of really heavy stuff that just got heavier when COVID happened.
0: Yeah. I mean, I'm, you know, I think that probably the after effects of COVID on mental health are going to be quite long-lasting. Yeah. Um, because so many people have been really dealing with a lot of, whether it's economic uncertainty whether it's the other things that you've pointed out,
1: mm.
0: I mean, I was in Paris for most of this year until August, I think I came back uh, or July. Um, and yeah, I went through three months of confinement mm. in Paris, so we were able to leave the house to do essential things like shopping, exercise, go to see a doctor, mm. do your laundry. Mm. Um, but you had to carry a police form, and the, poli- the bureaucracy in France, <laughs> the police were checking every right. day. Yeah. Um, so, for me, because I didn't, I did not have any family in in France. I didn't have anyone that I could actually see, mm. because we weren't allowed to see friends mm. who didn't live in our arrondissement mm-hmm. in our area. And so it was very isolating. Yeah, I bet. And I certainly came. About, I mean, it didn't completely dampen my mood because I had plenty to do, mm. but it certainly, you know, made me feel flat. Mm. I had flat days. Absolutely. Um. So, you know, I've ex—I have experienced quite extreme COVID situations. You know, in overseas. Mm. And I think you're right, we have been quite lucky in Sydney, but Mm. I'm still, you know, I'm still very aware of there just
1: being a general
0: sense of anxiety Yeah, yeah. for a lot of businesses.
1: Absolutely. And I think, you know, if you think of a traumatic event or or a very distressing event um, as kind of tightening a coil, (laughs) we've all had our coils very tight for a number of months now. And it takes some time to kind of un- coil from those types of things. And you're right, There, there's going to be moments where we kind of, you know, uh, bounce quite um, quickly back to um, anxiety and distress. And uh, even though we're connected via Zoom and, you know, social media and all of that stuff, which is wonderful. And we're so lucky to have a pandemic when we're so, you know, able to access each other still, but it's not the same. No. Human beings need to feel each other in the room, you know? Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So for
0: people who may be experiencing mental health concerns right now, whether due to COVID uncertainty or other reasons, what advice would you give to them? Are there any words of support, encouragement
1: or suggestions of ways to ask for help? Mm. Look, I think it's really important for people to know that mental health and mental unwellness, I don't like the word illness because I think it It kind Mm. of implicates that it's something wrong, you know. It's illness in a medical sense is you've either got a broken leg or you don't, but Mm. it's not like that with mental health. Yeah. So we all exist on this spectrum. Some of us hang up one end more than the other, you know. Some Mm. of us maybe tend towards mental distress more because of the experiences we've had in our lives or the environments that we live in. But um, I think it's important to remember that everyone's mental health is different. So what you need and what works for you might not be what the next person needs and works for them. And it's really important that if you need support, that you ask for it. Mm. And, and you know, one of my great passions in life is that mental health support is not about you being mentally ill. It's about you having another human being saying to you, we can get through this together. Let's Mm. think about this. Yeah. That's really the core task of counselling is thinking together with someone who's distressed.
0: Yeah, and helping them to problem solve. Absolutely. And and realise that there are solutions.
1: That's right, yeah.
0: But I do, and I think, you know, asking for help is something that still many people find challenging. But Mm. to me, asking for support or help Or just speaking about what you might be going through emotionally is a sign of strength. It's Mm. not a sign of weakness. Absolutely. And we need to just continue to raise awareness of that.
1: Yeah. I think, you know, one of the things, the disservices that mental, traditional mental health care, like psychology and psychiatry has done, is convince us that uh, mental health is a medical problem. And again, you either have a problem or you don't. And mm. I don't, you know, it's much more human than that and much more nuanced than that. So what I would say is, you know, if you're struggling with something, maybe counseling's not for you, but my attitude always is why not give it a shot, mm. <laughs> you know? And I've got lots of clients who come in for their first sessions who've never had any involvement with a counsellor, a or psychiatrist or anything before and who are really nervous. And by their third session, are like, man, why didn't I do this sooner? Yeah. You know? This is great. Yeah. 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 Totally.
0: I'm with you. So I understand you've worked through a feminist lens for some time now, and although Rough Patch isn't directly linked to gender equality, your staff are exclusively women and non-binary people. When and how did feminism become a part of your journey? And would you like to have more male counsellors? Feel free to expand.
1: Mm, Well... Uh, feminism, I've been a feminist without realising it since yeah. I was quite young, I think, even yeah. if that's not what I called it. Me too. Yeah. So uh, I think one of the things that used to really rev me up when I was younger was injustice. Mm. and um, And I guess because I was... Or am a girl, a woman, Um, that was, it was easy for me to see it in that context, I guess. So, Mm. you know, I I acknowledge that I've got a huge amount of privilege as a white woman born in Australia.
0: Mm. Um,
1: Perhaps if I was a woman of colour, I'd be um, uh, more impacted by other things. But for me, it was just like this was, I grew up in this quite patriarchal kind of culture on the Central Coast. It was very, uh, you know... We surfed and we skated and we did lots of, I don't know, boy stuff, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just, I don't know. I just, I guess really if I, I look back, if I use uh, the, the the knowledge that I have now, what it was, was patriarchal kind of overtones, you know. yeah it was like the, there was only one thing you do. You grow up and get married and have kids and you know a, a lot of my friends in high school and i mean with this with respect it's it's not you know i don't think that uh having the aspiration to grow up and have a family is bad or wrong not at all but mm. it just wasn't for me you know yeah so that was i think my how i got into that feeling of i don't, I don't like this otherness <laughs> that being a woman brings sometimes mm. And then, as I said, I loved badasses and weirdos. Like Bjork was my hero when I was growing up. Yeah,
0: I had Bjork hair. I did her hairstyle once. <laughs> yeah. With all the knots.
1: Yep. Yeah. yeah, that's right. She was so weird and cool and fascinating. She and, still is. Yeah. I still listen to her her music all the time. Amazing. Yeah. She's just done a new record not that long ago. It's incredible. Oh. Anyway. Yeah. I love her. I could talk about her all day. <laughs> but, um. You know, it, w- it was those types of women and those types of, uh, I guess, frameworks that I just didn't, I just didn't love it. You know, it just didn't work for me. And then as I got older, I started reading, you know, different feminist literature, and uh, it just sparked something in me. I guess it really spoke to that angry, um, uh, well, I wasn't angry. I think I was outraged about injustice. Mm. That part of me, yeah. Mm.
0: Yeah, I'm someone who's always cared about fairness. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, I I was fortunate that I grew up and had strong women role models in my family. Um, And I went to a school. I did go, It was fortunate, I got a scholarship to an all-girls private school where we were basically told that women could do anything. Mm. And... I always held that belief. And like you, I have never really had that aspiration to get married, have children. You know, that's kind of been like, well, it would be nice, but I've got other mm. things, ways that I can leave a legacy mm. in my life. Yeah. And when I became a feminist, I definitely became an intersectional feminist Um But I just also wanted to, you know, talk about your point about I think just Australia in general is patriarchal Mm. and even white women experience a lot of gender inequality. Mm. I mean, I myself, I wrote an article about why I became a feminist and it was because some things happened in my life that I never expected would happen to me. One of them was I was raped
1: mm.
0: and, you know, for two years I couldn't talk about that, mm. but I eventually did press charges and go to the police. Um, then I was in a domestically violent relationship and I guess uh, a third thing has been that as an outspoken human rights activist, I've experienced harassment and abuse mm. online. Mm. And so, and also when I was in a domestic violence, violent relationship, I became homeless. So I didn't actually think as a white woman that any of those things could happen to me, Mm. but they did. Mm. And then that just made me realise, yeah, I'm a
1: feminist. Yeah. How could you not be? (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, I think... You know, I felt so spectacularly let down by men when I was younger, you know, mm. by the adult men in my life. okay. And like, how could I not become a feminist after that? You yeah, know? like, and I think, um, I, one of my biggest struggles as someone who views the world through a feminist lens and who tries to work, you know, with with a feminist lens in counseling, one of my biggest struggles is, is when, from a personal perspective, I mean, is keeping my mouth shut when people say things like, oh, I'm not a feminist. And I think, oh, yes, you are. You just don't know it, <laughs> you know. And and I think um, it makes me so sad that it's become a dirty word, you know, or maybe that it's always been a dirty word, you know. Or the if word. Exactly, yeah. Mm. Yeah. You, you, you asked me before about um, whether it was intentional to have uh, only women and non-binary people as our um, counselors, and we had of the 91 people that applied, three of them were men. Okay. So it goes back to that kind of the industry is quite full of women. Yeah. Um, but I think again, a project like this, all of our counselors are either working three or six hours a week. They're not doing a huge amount of hours. That's mm. why we have so many.
0: Mm. Um,
1: and again, I don't think uh, a lot of men, perhaps if they're the primary breadwinners in the family can't actually afford to do that kind of stuff. Yeah. Again, women uh, end up, you know, picking up the slack on on the more kind of traditionally maternal stuff. Mm. So we'd love to have more male counsellors. Um, uh, yeah, we because we, we know that men want to see male counsellors, mm. which is totally understandable. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I think everyone has their own preference. Mm. Um, you know, I certainly connect more with women but I've had you know wonderful male counsellors and psychologists Mm. as well so I think it's great to have both options yeah
1: yeah that's what we're hoping to do yeah well
0: wish you all the best with that thank you so my last question is how can my listeners find you follow you and show support for the amazing work that you're doing and if they want to seek help from you
1: or work with you How do they go about doing that? Thank you for asking. That's, you know, Rough Patch really operates on the kindness of lots of people. Um, At the moment, we're looking for skilled volunteers, so people Mm -hmm. who can do things like website maintenance, uh, look after our web store. Um, Part of the Rough Patch model is a small uh, shop that sells mental health resources. Okay. So we've got a sort of counsellor curated selection of books. We've got, um, you know, we've got beautiful things like colouring books and We've got a custom, rough patch scented candle coming out for Christmas. So we've got all these really lovely self care items. One of the greatest things that people can do outside of you know volunteering is just buy things from the shop because that helps support us as well. Great. So if people are interested in buying Christmas presents from us, please feel free to do that. And whereabouts is your
0: shop? Where your practice? You're in Lyca, don't yeah, you? On yeah. On
1: Parramatta Road. So okay. We're just a little bit up from Norton Street. So it's about fifteen minutes from the city.
0: Easy. Yeah. Okay.
1: Yeah. And our socials, um, we're at rough patch Counseling on yeah. social media and then our website is roughpatchcounseling.com.
0: Okay, wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a pleasure. Thanks Sounds for having like me. We could probably talk for yes. a much longer. Let's do that. <laughs> I wish you all the best with your amazing social enterprise.
1: Thank you. <laughs>